Hello, welcome to season two, episode five of the Wolfighter podcast. I am Tom Constable and this is Colin Hillier. Hello. How's it going, Colin? You well? Yeah, it's frantic for reasons we'll talk about. But a couple of odd things are happening as, you know, I'm new to this podcasting game, obviously. One of the things thinking like, do we need an ident? We don't have an ident at the beginning of the show. What what do you mean by an ident? You know, this is your one-stop shop to everything, training simulation or something (laughs) terrible like that. Um, yeah. so, so if anyone's got any ideas, send them our way because I I've got none. Um, no, I, I just I, I think if someone has listened to this and they don't know who we are and what we're about, then I would I would question that. This is quite a you know a specific podcast about training yeah. and simulation within defence. I mean, it's a, it's a small industry, isn't it? Really. <laughs> I hope they read our show notes before they download it and commit to listening. Maybe there's people that don't. They just like randomised <laughs> yeah. to listen to random podcasts. What's this? Um, our general randomly pops. Oh, listen to this. <laughs> there's that, and then a very funny odd event where I called up a colleague. And by the way, I just made it clear that I do not force anyone to listen to my podcast at all uh, or our podcast um but uh, unfortunately he was on the school run listening to us then i call and he's like please don't do that that's very yeah. weird because i've been listening to you at one and a half one and a quarter speed what does that suggest about you know what he needs from you do you need basically need you to speak quicker during meetings um, is what he's trying to suggest here <laughs> yes he needs to listen to us at least one and a quarter <laughs> speed to just get it over with <laughs> Now, let's get on because we've actually got quite a few things to cover on this episode. I mean, the big thing that I think that's worth mentioning now is we're getting very close to IITSEC, which is the kind of world's biggest defense training and simulation conference in Orlando, Florida. We've got a bit of an announcement, haven't we, Colin? Yes, we have in true warfighter fashion, always ready, like the Boy Scouts, to spring them <laughs> to action if required, and squeezed in a special pre-show. I think it's going to come out just for the show, isn't it? It is 100%. Uh, otherwise, it'd be pretty pointless because it is the episode is all about if you're thinking about going out there or you've got FOMO of going out there, we, we've got a special episode for you where we talk about the key events, keynote speakers, some of the key announcements maybe that's happened, some of the places you might want to go and visit while you're there. And an awesome interview, which I don't want to give away too much. But yeah, just keep an eye out for it on the socials. The interview is definitely evergreen content. So even if you're not going to ITSEC or maybe you're listening to this historically, it's definitely be worth uh, looking at that episode as well. Yeah, depending on where you are, it's either what to look out for or what you're missing. Yeah, <laughs> like me. Right. Today's interview is a very interesting one. You know, I'm going to be going to call it now that I'm not the most unbiased in this discussion, as as you will come to hear, because I did work at the company Simcentric for kind of three years. So I know Gareth Well, Gareth Corrier, who's their VP of strategy. But the topic itself is all about kind of SMEs, innovating, building a product, making sure the client and customer wants it and how best to take that to market and grow it. And I think it's a really great example. The reason why I mention that now is that obviously we are sponsored, sponsored by Babcock International, specifically kind of supporting Team Crucible, which is their CTTP consortium. Now they are going to be at IITSEC. And one of the things that Team Crucible is trying to achieve with their bid is developing and fostering and driving an ecosystem. So if you are going to IITSEC, then it's worth probably dropping by the Team Crucible stand. That's actually at the CAE booth, which is booth 1734, but it'll be in the show notes anyway. And uh, yeah, drop in there if you're SME or, or interested in exploring being part of these big ecosystems for these big kind of UK collector training programs, definitely worth dropping by there. I mean, it's nice. We are biased. It's nice to see the large companies taking an interest in SMEs, but 
I don't think it's all altruistic. I think it's genuinely from a how do we get innovation? And the answer seems to be, well, one way is talking to the smaller players and seeing how we can work together. And as you say, I quite like this interview because here's someone who's done it or at least is a long way down the line Mm -hmm. and gone from you know a concept because we talked about the theory i think and but this is actually it's done it so it's a really good checklist i would say if you're going to go and do something like this or looking to support smes then the route that gareth has gone is probably like a good textbook example of how you should do it dare i say not there's any one way yeah and he gives those practical examples as well you know it's not just theoretical which is again what we like on the warfighter podcast so without further ado here is gareth collier VP of Strategy with SimCentric. Gareth, welcome. Thanks very much. <laughs> Listeners don't see the preamble to this conversation, but I've pretty much asked you to move into different rooms in your house, and we've settled on you going outside <laughs> your house in Australia to go and fight some kangaroos or whatever you do outside of your houses inside. I just assume that's what you do to get the best sound quality we possibly can. So thank you for persevering. Welcome. It's always an irony that technology companies generally have the hardest time networking for video conferences. Yeah, so true. Gareth, obviously, I know you very well, but if you wouldn't mind uh, just giving a quick overview of who you are, your background, and how you find yourself as the uh, VP of strategy at SimCentric. Yep, certainly. So joined the army at, at 17 straight out of school to the Defence Academy. Three years there, a year at Duntroon, then a year back doing honours. Graduated into the Royal Australian Infantry Corps and the 3rd Battalion. Had approximately uh, three years there, and then, or, sorry, in the Infantry Corps, and then uh Attempted special forces selection, was thankfully selected for commandos. Had a number of of deployments and training attachments over the subsequent years, including Afghanistan, Belize, Southwest Pacific, East Timor. Uh, Over the next sort of several years, I had a number of different training appointments. Came back to the 2nd Commando Regiment as the Capability Development Officer, and then subsequently in the Trade and Training Development uh, Officer role. So really towards the back end of my career, a lot of what I did was capability development in special operations, as well as the training elements. At that point, I had to make the decision kind of to recommit for for higher ranks or a good opportunity came up at the time to work with a fellow classmate of mine who was a Rhodes Scholar, Adam Easton, who offered me the position here at SimCentric. And I've been here for the last eight years. The main effort for, for today is to talk about the journey of essentially it's your brainchild as a concept from knowing a pain point through to developing proof of concepts, working with clients and on to delivering it to the end customer. But I'm really interested in your journey from Special Forces Commando through to technology innovator at, 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 you know, at a defense technology company. So how did you make that step and kind of what was the thought process and challenges just with moving into the, the kind of a, a technology driven company? I never found it that much of a challenge because I think ultimately, whether you're in the military or defense industry, you're ultimately trying to solve problems for warfighters. And it's just a matter of whether you're wearing a uniform doing that or whether you are working in defense industry to do that. So I really saw myself when I came across the defense industry, which to be honest, was only the second job I had after the military, (laughs) was really the same. It was, we need to develop systems, methods, products, applications that enhance the survivability of warfighters when they go overseas on operations. And if you can keep that as your singular focus, then really you're simply working a similar style of job in terms of its outcome. You simply have a different prism or view of how you're approaching that. Now, it's no secret, I spent a number of years at SimCentric working alongside you. So I am actually have the inner awareness of SAF Foresight, which you know I saw very much as your baby um, and your brainchild. So if you wouldn't mind... Uh, before we go into the, the deeper dive of the journey of SAF Foresight, could you give an overview of 
what the product is now, what it does. Yep, certainly. So just, I guess, a bit of background for, for people that might not be aware. When the military conducts live fire training, they define very precisely maneuver locations where people move around and obviously where they shoot. So the, the angles they shoot on, where the targets are placed, air danger heights, maximum range of, of certain munitions. That's all two-dimensional on a plastic overlay that's placed on a paper map. Now, that's how I was taught over 20 years ago. And the people that taught me were taught the same way 20 years prior to that. So it's a system that really hadn't changed in 40 years. So part of the, the concept was, well, there has to be a better way of doing this in terms of digitizing this in three dimensions along a timeline viewer so we can actually plan far more effectively. So that was kind of the genesis of the program. But within probably only about six weeks, we already pivoted to say, we're making things more efficient, but we're not solving the problem. There's a huge opportunity here to tackle an area that we've seen tragedy strike before and where persistent risk still resides. And where that was is if we carry through those spatial parameters from the planning stage into the rehearsal stage and use that with synthetic engines to do simulation rehearsals, we can identify where the risk is from a structural perspective. If we carry it the next stage further into the execution phase on the actual terrain with geolocated soldiers, platforms and the like, we can now analyze emergent risk and hopefully prevent those sort of catastrophic incidents from happening before it actually gets to that point. And so really, we saw within sort of six weeks the potential here that rather than just making planning more efficient, we could actually tackle the area of live fire military training and fratricide mitigation. That solution is a wonderful thing to bring together as, as a kind of modus operandi. Efficiency is key. I've seen people's eyes light up who, you know, when you tell them they don't have to use the, the hand angles and the rulers and the talcs, <laughs> uh, you know, that's just like, you know, why hasn't this already happened? But you know, the fact you can and hopefully will reduce risk of injury, which is a, sadly a thing that happens all too often, it really isn't an outlier. And crucially, the other thing, which is the, if it is safer, it actually means you could probably do more realistic live fire training, which it's only good for and, and will increase survivability on the battlefield. So there's like the trifecta there of, of good reasons why this should be taken forward. It's a fair point and it's a valid point there that any military can be completely safe and have no risk if it never trains, never shoots a live weapon. If you want to actually train effectively for combat operations, you have to train up that level of realism, which includes at night, combined arms, urban, all those areas where risk goes up. If you don't do that, you're not reducing risk. You're simply transferring risk to the force element when they deploy on operations overseas in combat. And so you have to get that balance between safety and realism at all times. Otherwise, you simply have risk occurring either in training or operations that you don't ever actually solve it. And at the risk of sounding like a fanboy here, and I think <laughs> Colin, you butt in to stop me from being a bit, bit too fanboy. It's completely down to your perspective on this. Having seen Foresight in action, it, it balances this out, and we'll come back to this, where it's adding value, reducing risk, but not getting in the way of the activity going, going on. Because all too often we develop technology and then overload the exercising troops or the soldiers using it, for, almost for the sake of it, or could be perceived for the sake of it, of using technology. Yeah, and it's, it's an important point that we made a very conscious decision and very finely tuned, where does the intelligence system cut out and where does it hand over to the human operator to use their experience and intuition and so what we've got to the stage of is where it will identify an emergent risk and, and code that as either amber or red in the location and the entity that it relates to 
But at that point, it is observed by the human operator who uses their experience and intuition to look at that configuration and orientation and say, I need to do these actions in order to restore safety. And so we were very careful that we didn't try and make it do everything to the point where it was no longer a trusted system by the human operator. Okay, so let's step this back now. So season one, we had an interview with members of DASA, so Defense and Security Accelerator, who looked to support innovative ideas, technologies, and take them further forward and fund them and get them in the hands of the warfighter. Um, so what we're hoping is this episode kind of bolts onto the end, the next stage of this, which is practical feedback from a company that has come up with an idea, developed it, got funding, and done, done exactly what we discussed with DASA, and we'll, we'll link that in the show notes. So the discussion we've just had, that's that's obviously the way that SAF Foresight has evolved. But let's take it a step back, and where did it all start? Quite literally, where, where did you have the idea? And then what were the processes that you went through in order to take it from you know, an idea in your brain through to kind of that initial MVP. So the, the initial thought process was, I guess, starting through the, the the training that we actually did, where it would take upwards of 50 minutes to an hour to hand draw a, a template design, something we can do now in sort of 90 seconds using this system. That was the genesis back in, in sort of over 20 years ago. But really in terms of what kind of effect or what the problem is we're trying to solve. So during uh, deployment to Afghanistan in 2007, Commando Company Group, one of the soldiers in that, that force element was Mason Edwards, tragically later killed in a live fire accident, training to, to go back to Afghanistan in a subsequent rotation. And within that, that impact area, there were actually three soldiers. So we were very fortunate not to have three deaths that night, although even one, obviously Mason Edwards was a tragedy. Subsequent to that, uh, I did a notification, which I won't go into details for obviously sensitive reasons, but a notification is effectively where you have to go and tell the next of kin that their family member has been killed. So that was an operational instance. But you see firsthand the sort of the absolute devastation and just ripping that person's life apart that you've just brought upon them. And putting those two things together, the only thing that I saw or believe that would be worse than that occurring is if you later found out that it was a training accident that actually could have been prevented. And so in terms of the motivation of what this system is and why you know I'm sort of passionate about it is if I can work on this for sort of 20 years and one extra soldier can go home to their family that otherwise wouldn't I'd, I'd chalk that up as a success absolutely so you came up with the idea you obviously got the passion behind it and then you know thinking about SME companies people with ideas right now looking to kind of draw on from your experience what advice would you give in terms of um, again from successes and failures from your journey to get it to that initial yeah mvp stage so there's a lot of stages that precede the mvp stage if i'd sort of put go back a step mm -hmm. so the first thing is having a passion of, of understanding what it is you want to do and what it is you want to affect if what you want to do is make money that's not a motivation that's a, a byproduct so having a, a focus on what it is you are seeking to achieve by getting involved in the defense industry of bringing innovation to the attention of defense is understanding why you get out of bed in the morning and do what you do. So the second thing I'd, I'd really say in terms of innovators is if you have an idea or a concept, do your market research first, 
understand if there is something already out there in the market that potentially has a large degree of overlap that might be more advanced than yours, that might already have a head start, more funding, because that can save you obviously a lot of expense and a lot of pain. If you don't do that and you find out sort of 18 months later, that can be obviously very, very difficult. Include defense in that conversation. So not to go into too many sort of anecdotes, but the guy who put me through my regimental officer's basic course for infantry, having dinner with him in Pakapunyal and just shooting the breeze of this as a concept, I actually went back to my uh, hotel room that night and spent the next three hours just building a mock-up with, with software I already had of just a concept that would visually show what we were trying to do took it back in and one of the the people we briefed the next day was actually my former regimental sergeant major from the 3rd Battalion. And when they looked at it, it was just like, wow, you've actually got something here. So that was probably the digital equivalent of crayon on a napkin. But even within 24 hours of that sort of conversation, we'd put something in front of the experienced practitioners to say, do you think there's merit in this? And when they kind of gave us as the sort of de facto green light, it was right, let's go forward with this. So before you even get to an MVP stage, just having those conversations and going to the user community, understanding you know what might already be out there before you start can all be done before you do any kind of prototyping, manufacturing, any of those kinds of, of actual investments. You all draw upon your military background and you were fortunate to have those kind of contacts that, that you could go and, and you know, they say, say shoot the breeze with and kind of get that real-time feedback for any organizations that are thinking well i don't have those contacts it you know it is still definitely possible when we spoke to dasa you can reach out to people like dasa innovation organizations their job is to help connect you with those end users to start those conversations as early as possible and although it may take you a little bit longer to find those people those champions those people that give you those that honest feedback it is super important as we can hear now and I'd say the other sort of element of that as well is you'll generally find military practitioners, particularly you know, uniform members, are very helpful. So if you ask them and say, look, here's what I'm thinking of, or here's a prototype of built, or here's you know what I'm thinking of, their best interest generally is going to be how do I you know get the warfighter the best kit they can. And so they will generally be able to help you as well have those conversations. So even things like trade shows, even things like open days, any of those kinds of things, even if you, the person you ask is not the right person, they're generally going to be helpful and steer you in the right direction to someone who can actually have that conversation with you at an early stage. My question, Gareth, is you don't have an MBA, do you? <laughs> no, I don't. Maybe, maybe you've earned your stripes on the street, on the hard streets because just listening to you, you straight out of the gate, you had the right approach, which was understanding the problem. And you know, I don't know what your experience is, but there seems to, maybe it's the same everywhere, but... We tend to see a lot of technology or solution searching for a problem as opposed to understanding the problem and developing a solution. Is that your experience? Very much so. And I think there's a pull-push element to this. So certainly the technology lead has to be there in terms of the technology has to exist, be feasible, particularly in the area of things like you know autonomous systems, you're talking things like rail guns. I mean, that kind of advanced technology, it has to be a certain point of readiness, but the other part has to be the push of the innovation and the requirements. So it has to be a, a melding of those two things. There has to be the need from the military and there has to be the innovation that, that meets that need. The other point I'd probably make, and, and again, bringing it back to SMEs and innovators, it's very easy to see someone at a very high, high rank, you know, Colonel, Brigadier, Major General, 
and go up to them and say, hey, I've got this great innovation, you should buy it. A couple of sort of caveats or, or observations I'd offer on that. First of all, if you don't know who they are, what they do, or what their pressure points are, or their hurt statements are, all you're going to do is describe your product and your widgets. You're not going to tell them how their problems can be solved. The second thing is, even if they are the ones with the requirement, the budget, let's say they funded initially, if you don't include the user community, those people who will use this on a daily basis in that journey, you will build something from the top down that hasn't incorporated the bottom up. And their feedback is critical at the earliest stage possible because they're really going to do a couple of things first for you. First of all, they're going to optimize the actual system that you're building because if they're the ones that are going to use it, it's in their vested interest to get it right the first time. And secondly, when it actually rolls out to that wider community and that wider community of practice, they're going to look at it and say, hey, this is brilliant. Well, of course it is. You guys told us what you wanted to build and what you needed to solve your problems. It'll save you from maybe having that engagement at a high level, getting a funding tranche, building a prototype, and two years later, you put it in front of the user community and then they tell you all the things you missed or why that's not going to work for how they do their operations. Because to me, we're all a bit privileged because we've all had some experience within the military and everything from the vernacular, the language, what it's actually like. I think people who haven't served, I have a bit of a tainted view and Hollywood's to blame about what it's really like. And, and the Hollywood view, as we know, is not really anywhere near uh, reality. Sometimes it may be, but a lot of the time it, it's not actually authentic. And, you know, I, I just wonder, it's a really hard challenge actually for complete, I guess, people without that perspective to understand some of the challenges the military have. I mean, do you have any advice for people who haven't served, want to sort of work with defence, they have some good ideas? Clearly, you're talk, you, you have mentioned talking to people, but I think that's a bit daunting for someone to say, well, where do I start? How do I get into the mess? How do I start talking to these guys? It's easy for you, Gareth, isn't it? Call your ex-colleagues, but how does someone that's not got that background do it? Yeah, it's it's one of those tricky questions. But the first probably word of advice I'd I'd say is don't bluff. Don't don't try and use lexicon or, or language that you've overheard because if you use it in a wrong context, you'll come off as inauthentic. Be honest, have a, a degree of humility and say, look, I'm not quite sure if this is the right fit for you, but can we have the conversation? And that will come off as far more authentic and welcomed really by the, the user community. The second thing I'd probably say is you have to start building networks within defense. Once you are amongst that community, you will start picking off, you know, just picking up just through osmosis of the sort of terms, the structures, what ranks have what responsibility, who manages budgets, all of those kinds of things. That's just a progress that I guess you have to go through. There's no, you know, there's no immediate fix you can you can sort of do to that. What I would say is probably in terms of networking, start going to things like trade shows. So, I mean, I've just come back from AUSA in Washington. Uh, we've got Indopac next week. We're off to IEDSEC in Orlando. That's obviously us, but if you turn up purely to walk the floor, walk and start getting an understanding of what technologies are out there, what yours might integrate with and operate with, whether something is in the market already. And certainly as you build those networks, they can help bring some of those military, military fraternity into your orbit as well, where you can have those conversations. One thing I've learned from both you, Colin, and you, Gareth, over the last few years is it's yes you need to get that feedback from the the end user utterly critical completely agree but equally it's really important knowing where the money actually sits and who's who's responsible for it and and the best way to approach it because you could spend a very long time courting a specific unit 
for a specific high-ranking individual. But if they actually don't have access to the budgets, although they spend the whole time saying how great you are and the product is, it actually could be a bit of a waste of your time. So you've really got to be a little bit Machiavellian, at least from my perspective, to find out where the money sits to ensure that you've, you know, you've, you've, there's only one of you, if you're a small SME or a small team, you've got to make sure you're using your time efficiently. Before I move on to kind of my, my next point, any, any reflections on that? Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, I don't see a problem with that. I think the military is practical. They understand that defense industry has expenses. They pay salaries, they have facilities, they build things. They, they, there has to be purchase orders, otherwise defense industry doesn't exist. So I don't see it as Machiavellian. I see it as practical because if you, don't, if you turn up to a, a unit and they say, look, our budget for this year is $35,000. Okay, well, what can we do for that if this is of interest? Or, hey, we've got no money this year. Well, you save them the time and you the time. It's still obviously courteous and, and the right thing to make them aware of, right, this is what we provide in case that is of interest of the future. But I don't think there's anything wrong in being upfront about what budgets actually exist because it saves it saves you time and effort on both sides. Coming back to the kind of the chronology, we had, I don't believe we've got to that MVP stage. My guess is you needed to identify where you get the, the, the funding from in order to develop that MVP. So how did you get that first injection of cash from the end user? Yeah, it was an interesting journey, actually, and this is probably quite salient for innovators, is we put forward a proposal for our innovation day. We'd done a number of engagements for that, but it was probably about five months after our initial briefing that we had built up some some good support at sort of up to full kernel level and were invited along to Army Innovation Day in 2017. So we briefed this up to a number of ranks, up to the then Chief of Army, who's the, the current Chief of Defence Force. And at that time, they said, hey, we're interested can we build a, a capability demonstrator? And so at that time, we did build that in a, in a simulation engine. Uh, we had it out the door in three and a half months. So we actually delivered that against 45 measures of effectiveness performance as of March of 2018. Now, we funded that to the tune of 80% ourselves. That's, that was our belief in the system. Army contributed 20% at that time to that capability demonstrator. On the back of that, this was a, a sort of interesting anomaly. Army headquarters here released a task order that tasked a number of organizations, including us, that they wanted this progressed and iterated further. I don't know if Army had the legal authority to task us as a civilian organization, but they, they did. So at that point, interestingly enough, though, Army did not have a budget or a funding line against this. So that was sort of a decision point for us to say, well, we either undertake this ourselves or we wait and hold off of Army to potentially have a budget some point in the future. And so we made the decision at that point that we were going to to build this. So we, we started building out of our internal R&D. And along that journey, um, Army then said, okay, well, how do we actually procure this in a way that's, that's fair, logical, and reasonable? So we actually did two tranche procurements. They procured an initial tranche of licenses, and then they executed their um, enterprise license option in June of 2019. And this is something that I think we were quite fair in and, and I think was a good model. We were willing to put skin in the game. So we said, we believe in this system. We will put our own dollars where our belief is. And defense, if you come in with, with a budget, you know, in the future or a, a collaborative budget, then we think that's actually a fair model. We don't think we should accept all the risk and we don't think defense should accept all the risk. And that's something that I think is an inherent challenge for innovators. I don't want to sort of sound downcast here, but that's where I think from my observation, the playing field is somewhat uneven. I think innovators 
will generally have to fund their initial prototype or concept to almost 100% and their defense dollars you know, will occur down the line. Whereas a number of, I guess, internal R&D, the, the internal R&D balance, I think, is out of whack a little bit at the moment. And that's not my point. This was brought up at a bilateral forum in Washington while I was over there. The observation that defense has a lot of what I'd call transactional contracts now, where effectively there's no internal R&D or, or you know, very, very minimal and it's a full cost recovery, meaning that company will not move forward on anything until you pay them fully or have a purchase order or surety or a contract in full for everything. And that's an observation, not just for Australia, that's really around the world that that observation was made at by a US representative. And I think that's one of the challenges innovators have to have is that persistence to get through that initial stage where they are fronting most of the internal R&D. So beyond that point, we started having, I guess, what I'd call a more balanced approach to that. But in terms of, of where SAF Foresight is, the company is still funded probably about 60% of this as an internal R&D investment. Yeah. And your example at the start where you talked about the you know, 20% investment or injection of cash from the end user to get you going, I think is key. And there's lots of companies that will go, oh my goodness, we've had, we, you would have to put 80% of the money up front. Well, I think just getting money out of defense and defense saying, you know, your idea is good enough to put money towards is such a big step forward that you take it if it's offered, regardless of, of proportions, I think. Now, you know, you are, you know, would you define yourself as an SME organization or a medium sized organization? Well, I think SME is probably a fair um, one. Sorry, something I'll, I'll just say there again in, in the innovator part is I'd agree that you have to just get a funding tranche. It has to be some sort of signal from defense that yes they're serious they want to see more the other thing i would certainly say from an innovator there is at that stage if you just do decide to commit you need to be able to name who your sponsor is if you go into this with someone who is posted out in three months or somebody who's sort of half-hearted that's sort of red flags you need somebody in there who is actually going to believe in your system as much as you do or at least is has the potential to believe as much as you do and advocate for its progression. That is a critical thing to be able to say, right, who is actually my advocate from within defense who is going to believe in this as it moves forward? Just something that occurred to me, clearly you've put a lot of thought and planning and, and work up front into this. So that's 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 really interesting. And I guess it's not to say that's the only route, but that's, that's the route you've chosen to do, um, which is commendable. But did you look at partnering with large, you know, primes, larger companies? Was it a conscious decision to go and engage directly? I know, I know, we talked about why you could. You had had colleagues, you you know, but was it conscious or was that just the way it worked out? In part, it was the way it worked out. I guess we tried to still have that very singular focus of the risk mitigation, which I know would be sort of attractive to a number of primes and a number are, are you know talking to us now. But I guess our decision to keep this as something we wanted to drive was really based around the fact it was quite a niche area. So in the area of live fire range design is something that could grow out later into a broader exercise management. But we wanted to build the system that we saw or we understood the value proposition of. And one of the, the whole point of Prime's partnering with smaller companies is to have that value proposition. I can cover it later, but it's probably worth mentioning now since it's, it's sort of arisen. One of the things I'd definitely sort of state to, to SMEs and innovators is if you understand your value proposition 
stick within that, have the flexibility to adapt and go after you know opportunities and mitigate risks, but do not try and build the world. SAF Foresight does two things very specifically. So one of them is to replicate the spatial parameters for impact area and live fire range training with, within exercises. And the second is the identification and mitigation of risk in training. Those are its two functions. Everything else we do, whether it's simulation engines or geolocation devices, we integrate for. If you try and go after every rabbit hole and every opportunity, all you're actually doing is diluting your value proposition and you are taking your effort away from what your distinction is that's going to have defense and primes knocking on your door in the first place. I mean, I think that's all really golden advice. If there was an innovator says, look, I've got some traction, I've been to a trade show, I've had a bunch of people really interested in this and they have the sort of the, the choice of two paths. Now, I know there's caveat this with depending on what they're doing, it may be one is better than the other, but do you have any advice for how they should look at, should they engage directly into the MAD or with a partner? Do you have any advice for them in terms of what would make you help you make that decision? I don't think it's an either or. I think that the best option is certainly to work both options uh, or both both avenues. With both of these, and it's, it's a thing that innovators have to understand, is both of those take time. You, you might get some seed funding up front, you might get some partnering funding, but typically both of those will be at least a year uh, in terms of actual traction and, and to a point of funding. So certainly if you believe you have a route through primes as well as a route direct through MOD, then you should really be working both angles at the same time because one or the other might come off, might not come off, might come sooner, later. But if you're working both of those opportunities at the same time, then you're really, you know, you're maximizing your chances, particularly if you're, you know, talking to the MOD and then they realize, hey, this innovation, so something like aerial targets, okay, that is a great innovation. By the time they go back to the prime and say, right, who's got something in aerial targets? Well, the prime has talked to you. Hey, I've got something in aerial targets. So that's, that circle can actually be fulfilled by talking to both organizations simultaneously. This is probably quite a tough question to answer, I suppose. And I don't know what sensitivities wise that you, that you may have, but for smaller organizations or someone that's come up with an innovation, an invention, a new technology, whatever it might be, is there a balance that they need to strike when they are engaging with these primes in terms of how much how much they lift their skirt, so to speak, when it comes about to talking about what, what they are, what they do, how that technology works? I'd say definitely. Um, I'd say research your primes because most primes, I would, I would say quite openly, they don't rip off other companies' IP purely because if, if they get that reputation, they can't form teaming partnerships, they can't form consortiums to bid for contracts. Once they are known as a company that just reverse engineers whatever suppliers come to them, they have that reputation. It's it's a large industry, but it's still you know it's still networked and people know each other. Having said that, um, in the development of foresight, we were very selective in who we took this to. We only divulged this to primes that we thought had a genuine need, had an opportunity, who could actually work with us in terms of an outcome. And it was almost it wasn't sort of on a need to know basis, but what we wanted to do was build it to a stage of readiness and maturity. So by the time any of those other companies that might look at it and say, hey, we'll have a crack at that. And we're aware of a couple that wanted to uh, to go after us in that space. By the time they sort of saw the maturity of the product and the, the system and saw what it actually did, they would look at it and say, well, you're six years ahead of us. 
you've already got you know existing contracts you're already working on many more you're already talking to the primes so my advice more generally to innovators is research your primes understand sort of who they are and how they operate but the vast majority of them are, are quite good I would probably still adopt not necessarily a need-to-know basis, but just be cautious of those primes that would have both incentive and capacity to build over a system if all you're doing is effectively showing them a mock-up because what you're showing them is you're actually not ready to go to market. So that is a dangerous place for innovators to be. Yeah, I mean, it's general practice, but I'm I'm sure if if any innovator doesn't know this already, first thing you do every single time, have a non-disclosure agreement in place mutual non-disclosure agreement must put them in it allows you to actually exchange that dialogue more freely um while still having having you know legal and commercial protections to them it's just standard due diligence there's lots of great advice in there and clearly from experience um but to paraphrase you know keep all the doors open but be picky with who you actually work with uh, <laughs> and be prepared you know don't come with a half-cocked idea i guess is that a fair summary correct yeah so if if you go in with a concept it needs to be to an organization or a stakeholder who will not be trying to build something like that before you can get to market. So that has to be to an innovation hub, to an advanced securities accelerator, a DASA, DSTL, any of those kinds of organizations who are exactly the ones who foster that kind of evolution in in technical readiness levels and, and innovation through life. That should be your start point. I would... If only one piece of information comes out of this this podcast, I would say do not take a, a concept that is effectively uh, on the back of a napkin to an organization that has the capacity to build it if you haven't got any kind of readiness to go to market yourself because all you're doing is, is basically giving away your good ideas. Ideas are... are- plentiful and, and usually free and and that's that's great advice you know do some of the work up front you know and the other thing i think we notice is the certain people who are the solutions looking search for a problem it's like mm. well okay hey we, with this technology we can solve a load of problems and then you go well what but what are you and then you made the the point about you actually quite laser focus then on what this thing does and maybe what it yeah, there's a longer list of what it doesn't do. Yeah, and I guess one of the other things there is you need to have growth and flexibility. But um, it was it was something that was said by the, the former head of Sordak over in, in the US, Jim Gertz, who's a you know brilliant individual. But he was saying we build these sort of capabilities over sort of 18 years, thinking that technology is constant, the threats constant, the force elements constant. You know, none of these things are constant; they change. And so, in your innovation. You have to stay laser focused in what your drive is, your outcome, your capability actually is. But you need to stay cognizant of those things that are changing. Defence Strategic Review in Australia is probably the prime example there that, you know, this huge shift in terms of, of military force posture and structure, you need to have the adaptability and the flexibility to be able to move with that as well. So an example there. We started obviously with a spatial digitization of ranges, moved very quickly to risk mitigation for live fire. And one of the early ones we modeled was actually around isolated entities. So if you have one person alone on a range and they are separated from their force element, that pings an alert immediately. So that was a priority up front given what had happened. Um, but what we've added just recently is actually the monitoring of speeding in vehicles. So land vehicle accidents causes obviously injuries, deaths, um, you know, fairly frequently. In military training areas so it's got nothing to do with live fire but it has got everything to do with risk 
So we've actually added that in there as yet another thing that we can we can put forward as something that's actually making a difference in that force generation space. I'm conscious we're coming to the end of this chat. I am. I know that we could go on for a number of hours. Sorry, I, I looked at the clock. It was 20 minutes about two minutes ago. So <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> but you've identified a need. You've produced a product that increases efficiency, uh, reduces risk of injury, and allows them to do better quality training. It must be the land of bread and honey now. Now, I'm, I know that isn't the case because I've obviously <laughs> been chatting. <laughs> so rolling in, surely. So... so what are these speed bumps that have hit you on the way and, and give us some you know, some some dits, some stories as to how you've overcome them. And again, hopefully people can learn from from this as well. That it's not as easy as it sounds. No, I think it's something that's a worldwide that um, I think defense is learning how to do it better. But I think we've gone through about a decade of defense really having difficulty to go from what is a very structured acquisition process of request for tender, you know, tender evaluation boards, all of these kinds of processes. But if something bubbles up through innovation, how does it move from something that's developed over several years into a sustainable through life system? And I think defense is getting better at how to sort of manage that transition, but it's been a learning process to say something that has come up through an innovation pipeline. Well, if it's come up with all that sort of proprietary knowledge and development, you can't exactly reverse engineer the requirements, take it to market and award it to another company. I mean, that's just a you know complete breach of all kinds of, of commercial incompetence um, <laughs> aspects. So to me, the biggest, I guess, learning curve we've had is understanding those transition points, taking it from an innovation system that has iterative development with stakeholders that do detailed statements of work, that does quality acceptance, that has, you know, constant, you know, soldier touch points throughout, how do we move it from that into that capability development space? And I'd love to give you an answer, but I don't think that's either going to be uniform across militaries or it's going to be stable or or sort of bedded in for several years to come. I I think that is still a process in motion, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And... My final thought, again, a bit of a reality check, but I think people and innovators should understand this because it is—it's a journey that that you've gone on, and many other people have as well. But from idea inception through to you know, and I think hopefully you will define what you what you see as crossing the chasm. How many years um, do you think it's going to or has taken you? So from the very first sort of digital you know napkin that we showed to the fence uh it's been a six-year program uh, process to date but all of those I, w- I would say have been productive years so we actually made a conscious decision and this is probably commercially not advantageous to us but we made a conscious decision not to start showing this to any other militaries worldwide until it was a system that we would be happy to use ourselves so a, a number of, of systems are kind of shown at their early prototyping stage given this was a safety critical system that could actually save lives, we didn't want an 80% solution in front of other militaries. So we have engaged with a number of other militaries now across the Five Eyes and and NATO community. Um, We've got a number of of sort of very good, I guess, good progress in a number of areas there. So crossing that chasm, there's two stages I'd probably say to innovators. So the first one is identifying your launch client which for us was Australian Army. How do you cross from that innovation to a sustainable through-life system? 
And the second, if your system has global applicability, how do you then approach those other sort of markets? And that's something I have noticed very definitely in the last sort of 18 months to two years is those communities of practice, so AUKUS, Five Eyes, NATO, they are getting much better at really trying to go out and find that innovation and giving them the opportunity to show their wares within those other countries. Great. I've noticed there's a number of the primes in certainly the UK and probably elsewhere are starting schemes really probably along the lines of what you've been talking about, recognizing that that they don't necessarily have capability across a large spectrum and there's always something new. And the only way to, to get that capability technology is to work with SMEs and their site-specific schemes to sort of engage with them, understand what you know, the concepts are and working with them. Is that something you've noticed or do you have any thoughts on that or how primes could better work with SMEs to, to draw this innovation through? So we're somewhat fortunate in that we've been around for 15 years. So we've, we've had the opportunity to build up from a startup into, into sort of a sustainable organization. But certainly I can understand why startups would find those kinds of frameworks attractive and certainly why primes would want to go and, and actually find that best innovation in the market and, and foster it and nurture it. The one thing I'd say from an innovator point of view is just understand what is happening with the intellectual property. Is this something that you are doing transactionally that, yes, you'll be paid for, but the owner will be the prime? Or is this something that you will be building with them as maybe a shareholder? Maybe they have an enterprise license, but you keep the IP and can use it elsewhere um, because there's a world of difference in terms of your future growth and scalability of your innovation, um, depending on on what that terms and conditions around the intellectual property set. I think that's a whole other episode, actually. So <laughs> leave there. But, uh, you know, the, I think there is some maturity because I think in the past, if a company paid for something, it's like, well, it's RIP then, and actually, that that sometimes just kills stuff stone dead. So it, it's not in anyone's interest to do that. And sometimes leaving the IP with the SME is actually a better way. Let it grow, let it flourish, as opposed to kill it off. Yep, totally agree. Brilliant. Well, Gareth, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for persevering and finding the best place to record and finding the right date and time that works for you. I know it's late into your evening. If people want to find out more about you, we'll put your uh, link to your LinkedIn and to the SimCentric website in the show notes. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Jens. Thanks, Gareth. I think Gareth probably lecture on this stuff. Um, he, he seems to know his stuff very well. He's got experience of it. As I said at the top, you can definitely break the rules, but if this is the way you would methodically look at bringing your product to market and selling into the industry, this is a really good example. I'm really pleased Gareth was able to share that with us. And like you said at the top, there's not one way to do this. And like Gareth said, basically, you know, there's not one way to it. That's just the way. But what I really enjoyed about Gareth and unlike when I worked with him, every decision he makes is based on logic. There's a thought process and a reason why he's done it. There may be different ways to cut it up, but it's a sensible decision every single time. And I think that yeah, people can learn a lot from that. I really enjoyed it. I, I hope that there are people listening to it that really go, oh my goodness, this is a an absolute you know lifesaver or a literally for the product. But um, <laughs> in terms of the experience, I, advice or suggestions, it's hopefully it's nudged a few people further forward. And, and like you said at the top as well, if there's bigger organizations, primes listening to this, just one example of an SME and the challenges and do you want to talk about what we just talked about off air about the, there's one thing 
crimes and bigger organisations having a way to bring on board SMEs. But yeah, so I've noticed, apart from our dear sponsors, they're keen <laughs> to engage with SMEs, but a number of the larger primes have got schemes to engage with SMEs. I'm, I'm sort of very looking at this very closely, but it, it's definitely a two way street. Yes, the primes can do more, but I also see some of the smaller organisations being pretty naive. And if they can improve their understanding of the market and how the, the mechanisms they can sell into, then everyone will benefit. So, yeah, it's a bit like the Y Combinator startup incubator stuff, right? That's all about educating them in, in the way startups work. And maybe we need some more of that in our industry to just just to help. Yeah, and that's it. Even in a scenario where the SME isn't naive and the primes are supportive, you then still have the, the third hump, which is, it just takes so long to get anything on contract. And any to get any contract of worth for a product or an innovation specifically, you're then adding a year or two minimum to because it's a new innovation. Therefore, there's no allocated line item to that innovation. And that, I hope, again, anyone from Ministry of Defense's organizations like that are listening to that. That really is the key fundamental killer. It's Everyone else can be doing everything right and it still fails. And that is, I, I suggest, is the problem to be addressed from a government perspective. Colin, uh, well, next time we talk, you're going to be just about packing your bags and almost stepping on the plane for ITSEC. But I'm, I'm looking forward to that special episode all about everything you need to know about ITSEC and a special guest interview. To be revealed. TB, TB revealed. Unlike us, we actually know who it is, and it's a really exciting next episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not going to sell you, so you'll have to just wait for it. <laughs>